relationship and responsibility. As Christians, of course, we have both. All right, we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We also have a responsibility to Jesus Christ. And yet in uh, church culture today, I'm increasingly hearing more about the former and less about the latter. Uh, the Apostle Paul said, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Of course, we have a relationship with Jesus Christ the moment that we submit our hearts and lives uh, to him in repentance and place our faith and trust in him. We know that we're saved by grace through faith and nothing else. When that happens, his Holy Spirit takes up a residence within us. And then we have an active relationship with him, of course. But we also have a responsibility to abound in the work of the Lord. So our purpose as followers of Jesus Christ goes well beyond simply having a relationship like this thing that we carry around with us. It also means that we follow him and all that that includes. Uh, George Campbell Morgan, referring to Jesus, once said, he never announced a truth, however, merely that men might apprehend it intellectually. He always applied truth to immediate circumstances and to actual needs. So obviously Jesus understood that truth would do little for the hearer if it wasn't then applied practically in our lives. And obviously he modeled that for all of us in his own life. And yet today I hear and read a lot in the church world about the relationship aspect of being a Christian. And that's very good, actually. That's very important. Uh, but it doesn't mean that we can leave out the other part, right? The responsibility part, the part where we actually do something for Jesus Christ. Having a relationship with him is far more than, than an intellectual assent uh, where we say that we believe that the gospel is true. Having a true relationship with Jesus Christ, or, uh, with anyone else for that matter, also means that at some point we accept that truth and it becomes a part of who we are, which always results in us actually doing something to keep the relationship alive and active uh, otherwise it dies. James says faith without works is dead. It's no longer alive. Why? Because real relationships don't exist uh, simply in our minds or in our emotions or even in our, our good intentions alone. Real relationships exist in the reality of how we actually live out our lives together with each other. So uh, when we get married, we make a covenant with another person to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part uh, according to God's holy ordinance and thereto I pledge thee my faith or I pledge myself to you. There's a lot of actual doing packed into those words as any of you who's ever been married knows. And likewise, when we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, we make a covenant not only to believe, but to follow him and to obey his commands. But there are some elements of the church today that don't really want to talk about that, our responsibility part of this deal. They love to talk about the relationship and the good feelings and the positivity. And again, those are actually all legitimate elements of our relationship with Christ. But so is the part where he said, if anyone would come after me, 
let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 9.23. There's a lot of actual doing packed into those words as well. And this is what James is talking about in the second half of chapter 2 of his letter, which will be our main text for this morning as we continue our sermon series, James the Just, uh, working our way through the book of James. This subject often gets a bit uh, precarious in conversations amongst believers because it can drift to one extreme that becomes very legalistic and implies that we must somehow earn our salvation uh, by our works which is preposterous, that is impossible. We could never earn our salvation. That comes by grace, through faith, alone. That's what Paul teaches us clearly in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But then there's the other extreme, those who teach that because we're saved by grace through faith, it doesn't much matter what we do or don't do. Uh, Just try to be happy, try to get along with everyone. We don't need to really worry about striving for the faith. Uh, We don't need to be bothered with responsibility, spiritually speaking, or accountability, or obedience, or sin. Okay? I'm as guilty as anyone of sin. And I'm forgiven, as forgiven as anyone of sin. In fact, Martin Luther once said, sin is indeed always in us, and godly people feel it, but it is covered. Right? We are forgiven. But there are some elements of the church today that simply brush off sin as if it's not really that serious because Jesus just loves everybody. Well, he does. He does love everybody. He loves us so much so that he died a horrible death as a holy sacrifice for our sin. He didn't do that so that we could make light of it. And yet there seems to be a prevailing attitude within a segment, at least of the Western church today, that says as long as we accept everyone and everything, as long as we don't judge anyone or anything, it will all work out in the end because faith is a personal choice. And so we're only responsible for ourselves and what we feel is personally right for us. Don't worry about trying to live a holy life. Don't worry about someone else trying to live a holy life or striving for righteousness. Just be accepting and loving and don't worry about the rest. You do what you think is right for you. I hear things like that a lot. And yet Paul said, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. There's a lot of doing involved in that statement. And he goes on to say that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side together for the faith of the gospel. Philippians 1.27. He's talking about faith and works together. This is Paul. And then in Ephesians 4.1 he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. There's a, a, there's a lot of doing packed in that statement. So what's the deal, right? Is it about faith or is it about works? Is it enough to believe or are we responsible to do something with our faith? with our relationship with Jesus Christ? Are we saved by grace through faith alone or is our faith dead without works? Which is it? And so I'm just going to clear this up right now in the introduction to this sermon. 
The answer to all of these questions is, are you ready? The answer to all of these questions is yes. How's that for clarity? So don't feel bad if you feel like some of these passages seem to contradict each other because you're not alone. And there have been people throughout the ages, believers, scholars. In fact, uh, Martin Luther felt like it was a contradiction between Paul and James, so much so that he was all for tossing the book of James out of the, the Bible altogether. But as with any other passage of Scripture, we can't get tunnel vision. If we read it in the context that it was written in and in the context of other scripture, when we do that, even these passages become clear. In fact, it becomes clear that Paul and James were actually in agreement about faith and works, and they both talked about both quite a bit, as we'll see today as we work our way through the remainder of uh, chapter 2. Not only will we see that works are, in fact, an important element of our faith, but it goes even beyond that, because it's not just about activity. It doesn't just matter that we're doing something for God, but what we're actually doing is equally as important. And so when I began to discover this in my own life, the fact that I'd been claiming to be a, a follower of Christ for a long time without actually following him, without denying myself and taking up my cross every day and actually following him, as Jesus said, I realized... Uh, that I had to make some changes because I could believe something intellectually but that wasn't the same as truly accepting and living out that belief in my life okay there was activity there I went to church and was involved in contemporary Christian church culture but I finally came to a place where I realized that God's calling in my life was going to require more than just agreeing in my mind with the teachings of the gospel more than simply spending my time uh, within the context of Christian culture. Because there was a calling to deny myself and take up this cross every day and actually follow Jesus Christ. And that, as it turns out, would require far more from me. It would mean a lot of doing. And so, of course, when we talk about calling the life that God has called each of us to, there is a unique and very personal aspect to that because he calls us to different things and he gives us different gifts and different opportunities and different resources and so on. And so the details of that uh, need to be reconciled between each of us and God. But I will say that one simple litmus test that I've tried to apply to my own life and decisions for many years now in order to help me determine if how I'm spending my time and energy and resources is going to have a lasting effect for the kingdom of God in fulfilling his great commission. It's this. I often ask myself this question. What am I doing right now that will matter 100 years from now? What am I doing today that will matter 100 years from now? And of course, there is no single a catch-all question that will ultimately lead us to the best decisions in life every time. And so I'm not trying to oversimplify the process of living out our faith in Christ that is as unique and individual as we are from one another. However, as a gauge for how you spend your time and energy and resources, this question can be very useful in helping you determine the eternal worth of whatever it is that you're occupying yourself with. Growing up in my high school years, 
we lived in a nice neighborhood in a subdivision. Uh, it was a suburb of Raleigh and, and all of these nice homes. And I remember thinking that there seemed to be an unofficial competition between some of the neighbors as to who could maintain the finest lawn in the neighborhood. Uh, Clearly, it was very important to some of these guys because if they weren't at work, they'd spend what seemed like every waking moment until it was dark working in their lawn every day. And they were incredible. They were impeccable. Okay? And I'm not saying, obviously, that gardening or working in your yard is inherently unimportant. In fact, uh, vegetable gardening for me can be deeply spiritual uh, in good and bad ways. Uh, sometimes it's very frustrating. But I love working outside the house because I spend that time with the Lord as much as I spend working the ground. And so yard and lawn and gardening work can certainly have some eternal value associated with it. And so I'm not knocking that activity in and of itself. But the question is, is there any real eternal value for me or for others in whatever it is that I'm pouring my time and energy and resources into? Because if there's not then it may be time to reevaluate how I'm spending my time and energy and resources. So if your primary motivation, for instance, or pouring your time and energy and resources into your lawn is so that with great pride you can show up your neighbors who have kind of a shabby, unkempt yard, right? it may be time to reconsider what you're doing with your time and energy and resources. As much as we don't like to drive past a place that isn't kept up as well as ours, maybe that neighbor with the unkempt yard, the one you know with the, the lawn always seems a little too long, and the shrubs look like they get uh, pruned about every three years. But maybe it's that way because that neighbor is spending her time and energy and resources uh, seeing to it that orphans in China are getting placed in loving Christian families. That's not to say your yard doesn't look good, by the way. <laughs> Daniel and Haley, you have a wonderful yard. <laughs> Just using her ministry as an example. Maybe that neighbor uh, is spending his time and energy and resources visiting the sick and lonely people in the hospital and in their homes. Maybe... Maybe she's spending her time and energy and resources helping to provide for people's immediate needs around her. Right? What if that neighbor's spending his time and energy and resources working with the youth in the church, mentoring and discipling them? What's going to matter more in a hundred years? The fact that there was a yard in front of a house somewhere that was impeccable. Or the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ was lived out and shared directly with other human beings every day. I know we don't like to be told what to do. I know that. I, we don't like feeling that our actions are being judged by others. I understand that. But the Bible is unambiguous when it comes to what we do with our lives. The plain truth according to scripture is that our actions, what, what we do with our time and our energy and our resources matters. And not every action that we take stands on equal ground in eternity. Okay, some of the things that we do simply hold more eternal value than others. And I'm, I'm simply saying that I want as much of what I do as possible to have as much eternal value as possible. And that one question helps me to gauge that. Asking myself, what am I doing today that will matter 100 years from now? 
So let's jump into our text right where we left off last week, and we'll see what James says about how we spend our time. And maybe through this study, we can gain a better understanding of the eternal value of some of our actions. Okay, let's read together. James 2, uh, starting with verses 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. (laughs) Now, this is perhaps one of the most provocative and controversial in your face statements that James could have ever made at this point in his letter. And this is where context makes the picture even clearer. So think for a minute exactly who James's audience is. Exactly who it is that he's writing to. We talked about this last week. It's a bunch of first century Jewish Christians who, outside of Palestine, scattered all over the Mediterranean world, probably in house churches. But the point is, these are Jewish Christians. These are people who have not only bought into the gospel of Jesus Christ, the new covenant, the completely radical idea at the time that the law was no longer your hope for salvation. Rather, it is by faith alone that we can be saved. And again, these aren't Gentiles. These are Jews. These are people who've risked everything, rejecting the old legalistic ways of their own people in order to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. And chief among those teachings is that salvation comes by faith in Christ alone. Accepting this gospel for a Jew meant leaving everything else that they'd ever known behind. This was an earth-shattering paradigm for a first-century Jew to accept. And so keeping that in mind, knowing exactly what it meant for these Jews to put their faith in Christ alone and walk away from their former life, James comes along in verse 14 and says, Do you really think that your faith alone can save you? What a completely outrageous thing to say to a bunch of Jewish Christians. And that was precisely the point, you see, because these Jewish Christians were getting to a place in their lives, as we see throughout the letter, where their faith and their actions were incongruent. Their their faith said one thing, and their actions said something entirely different. Right? Remember at the close of chapter 1, James reminded these same church-going, very religious Jewish Christians that religion that is pure, he said, and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows and their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James 1.27. And then here in verses 15 and 16, we just read, he says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? You see, these Jewish Christians were becoming ineffective believers. They had faith, they believed, but their actions didn't line up with their doctrine. Well, hey, I, you know, as long as I just believe, it doesn't matter what I do or don't do, right? Because I said, I said a sinner's prayer once. I walked down to an altar once, so I'm good, right? 
It's not hard to find that attitude in the church today. And so James is trying to combat this spiritual laziness within the church and get everyone's attention with a really outrageous statement. He does a good job because this, this opening part of this section of chapter 2 uh, rocks their whole world. He says, your faith, apart from works, is dead. Those are fighting words. I'm telling you, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall that day when they opened up that letter because James just rocks their whole world with a statement that calls into question the entire foundation of their new faith. Okay, so he was intending to be provocative here. But then he goes on further. Uh, let's keep reading. Verses 18 and 19. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Again, keeping in mind that these particular Christians are also Jews, we need to understand the nuance of what he's saying here. In verse 19, he says, You believe that God is one. That's a direct quote from the Hebrew Shema. The Shema was, and, and in fact it still is, a creed that is uh, the core of the Jewish faith. It's found in Deuteronomy 6, 4, um, Mark 12, 29. It's referenced in Romans 3, 30. And it starts out with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the central prayer in the Jewish prayer book. In fact, it's the centerpiece of the morning and evening prayers of the Jewish people. It's the, it's the first section of scripture that Jewish children are required to memorize. You can't get any more Jewish than to quote the Shema. And that's exactly what James does in verse 19. He's appealing to their Jewishness, himself included, of course. And he says, listen, it's good that you believe what you believe. And he goes right to the core of their doctrine. However, he says, when it comes to this Christian faith of ours, there is a difference between believing in Jesus and following Jesus. It's not that James doesn't believe that we're saved by grace through faith. He does. In fact, uh, you'll remember from last week, he opens up the beginning of the chapter with, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. James 2.1, okay? So he understands as well as anyone that our common faith in Jesus Christ is the reason that we're brothers and sisters in him. There is no salvation. There is no adoption as sons and daughters in God's kingdom without saving faith. And James is well aware of that. But simply believing that something is true is different than accepting and following that truth in your life. And that's the point he's making in verse 19. He says, you believe God is one. It's the core of your faith. That's good. You do well. Hey, guess what? So do the demons. The demons believe and shudder. Again, he's making these outrageous, earth-shaking statements to get their attention. He says it's not enough to simply believe that something is true. Even the demons believe that God is who he says he is. It's another thing altogether to become a follower of Jesus Christ, which is where the marriage between relationship and responsibility is realized in our lives. And I'll just tell you that I personally believe that there are in epic proportions churchgoers today 
who believe that Jesus is who he says he is, but they're not actually following him. Why do I say that? Well, let's keep reading and we'll see. Verses 20 to 26 to finish out the chapter. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So James seems to be pretty settled on the idea that we're justified by works and not only by faith. And yet Paul in both Galatians 2 and Romans 4 says that we're justified, uh, that we're not justified by works, we're justified by faith alone. And, and when you, you look at the original Greek, and these guys talking about justification, they're using the same word, dikaio. So what's the deal? Okay, it's a contextual issue. Again, there are words in, in the Greek, in the Hebrew, in the Aramaic, that the Bible was originally written in that can mean different things, depending upon the context in which they're used. We have the same situation in our modern English language, right? Uh, if I say the word bound can mean I'm heading somewhere. I am bound for California. Well, it can also mean that I'm not able to head anywhere. Right? I cannot go to California because I'm bound from leaving. It's context. The word buckle means to connect something, right? I've buckled my seatbelt. It can also mean to collapse, to come undone. The bridge buckled under the pressure of the storm. To cleave can mean to adhere to or to separate. Right? You get the picture. We don't have time this morning to completely unwrap all the differences between Paul's usage of the word justify and James' usage of the same word. It's fairly extensive and it's actually worth the time to spend. It's interesting, but even as they both refer to Abraham, Paul denies that Abraham was justified by works and James argues that he was justified by works. Well, the context in which they talk about Abraham is very different and consequently the word justified. Paul's referring to Abraham back in Genesis 15. James is referring to Abraham in Genesis 22. Different circumstances, different context, different meaning for the same word. And so, although the Greek word dikaio can mean to make one righteous, which is the sense and context used by Paul for that word when he says we're justified by faith alone, it also means to evince to be evidence of, to reveal or show evidence of righteousness that comes by saving faith. This is the sense of the word that James is using in his letter here. In other words, works are not requirements for salvation. They're evidence of salvation. To be sure, according to James, if you truly have saving faith, then there will be works in your life that are evidence of that faith. Right? If your faith is real saving faith, there will be corresponding works in your life to testify to that faith. So the word justified, dikaio, in this passage is approving of our faith by our works. 
And it applies in both directions. Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Matthew 7, 15 and 16. Interestingly, the word fruits here is the Greek word karpos, which is referring to works, acts, deeds. Right? It's the same principle here in Matthew 7. What is coming out of your life is indicative of what is in your life. So if you're truly following Christ, there will be corresponding works, fruit being produced from your life, that reflect Christ who is in you. And in turn, if there's no real saving faith at work inside of you, that will be reflected in what comes out of you as well. So our works don't save us. They rather prove the salvation that is already at work in us which comes by grace through faith alone. And so back to my assertion about the state of much of the church today. When you look at some of the books that are being written by popular church leaders, when you watch television interviews with some of our popular church leaders, when you peruse social media posts made by church members, honestly, very often I have trouble discerning any difference in the fruit, the works coming out of those who are claiming to have faith in Christ from those who are denying faith in Christ. I'm not saying it's a majority, but I'm saying it's a huge percentage of what's out there, far too large, a portion of what's coming out of professing Christians in the media today, at least in my estimation, is bad fruit, works that do not reflect the spirit of Christ that we're supposed to have living inside of us. Now, listen, I'm neither talking about people being perfect, nor am I condemning anyone to hell. I'm not qualified to make judgment calls about either of those. In 1 Timothy 1.15, the Apostle Paul wrote, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. He's talking about himself, the Apostle Paul. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Of course, he hadn't met me yet when he, when he wrote those words. I know he hadn't met any of you. <laughs> That's just, that's a joke. You can lighten up a little bit. <laughs> Thanks. The point is this. We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about the fruit that is produced in the works that you perform that either reflect the Spirit of God in your life or something else. Paul said the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. So when your works produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, you reflect the Spirit of God in your life and your works have eternal value. But if most of what is coming out of your life is disunity and frustration and strife and urgency and unkindness and selfishness and unfaithfulness and harshness or lack of self-control, it may be time to reevaluate whether or not you're truly following Jesus Christ. And again, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I can neither convict or condemn anyone. That is not my place, and it is not my job. My job is simply to point out to you today what James was pointing out to the church in his day. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. We can say 
that we believe all that we want to. But if what is coming out of our lives on the whole is not producing good spiritual fruit, then what we say we believe means nothing. We're just making dead statements about faith. Our lives must, again, on the whole, there will be struggles, of course. There will be sin. Absolutely, we're far from perfect, all of us. But on the whole, our lives must reflect what we say we believe. Our works must prove our faith to be true. Several years ago, in a moment of real honesty and vulnerability, I was reflecting on my own life and at the time I was nearing 40 years old and I remember thinking if the Lord continues blessing me with good health I may be nearing the halfway point of my life and so I began to reflect on my life up to that point and there was some good fruit that I could point to some measurable works that had held some real eternal value but I knew that if I really believed what I said that I believed what I told other people that I believed that I would be producing far more works in my life that would reflect the faith that I claimed I had. Because it was a faith that said there is this transcendent, almighty God who created the universe and everything in it. An all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing completely sovereign and holy God whose living spirit was actually in that moment living inside of me enabling me and empowering me and leading me to do truly eternal things things that would matter a hundred years from that moment and beyond. And so it was that day that I began asking myself, and I do often now, what am I doing today that will matter 100 years from now? Because if I truly believe what I say that I believe, then it's time to get busy with eternal matters. I'll tell you, that was a watershed moment for me. And the course of my life was drastically altered from that moment to today. And so I, I just ask you to ask yourself, what am I doing today that will matter 100 years from now? What am I doing today that has eternal value? And I can tell you, uh, if you're raising children, according to the Word of God, the teachings of Christ, that is going to matter 100 years from now. Those are works of eternal value. If you're discipling someone in your life, a friend or a co-worker or a spouse, that is eternal activity. If you're serving the body of Christ in any capacity, not just receiving, but if you're serving, that is going to matter 100 years from now because that has eternal value. I read some articles this week preparing for this sermon about things that were done 100 years ago that are still having impact today for the kingdom of God. Fantastic. There are churches that are now celebrating 100-year anniversaries because 100 years ago, someone was obedient to the call of God in their life and started a church. And as a result, 
thousands of souls have come to Christ through some of those churches in the last hundred years. Missionaries that traveled to remote parts of the earth a hundred years ago. Places that had never heard of Jesus before. Places that today, because of the faithfulness of those missionaries, are thriving Christian communities who are sending out missionaries uh, from themselves. In 1910, less than 2% of all the Christians in the entire world lived in Africa. And today, 100 years later, nearly 25%, a quarter of all the Christians in the world live on that continent in 100 years. That is a testament to the work of God through men and women who understood that their faith had to translate into something more than just talk. I don't know about you, but I want my life to count for something 100 years from now. Something that in the end will have touched countless souls for Christ. And I know that won't happen if all I ever do is talk about it. I don't want a dead faith. I want a faith that is working in the lives of people all over the world 100 years from now.